0: the one thing all great teams have in common great coaching try to suck up to me i'm gordon bombay the new hockey coach all right let's go learn me come on we're
1: team usa gathered from all across america and we're gonna stick together
2: you know why because we are ducks and ducks fly together
1: it's the quack attack podcast hey everybody now Old Ducks and New Ducks must unite under a new banner. i Mike. Tommy is not here. Kevin is not here. But they'll be in the episode because this is part two of our conversation with D2 director Sam Weissman. We'll pick it up right away with Sam talking about the point in the movie process where he quote unquote wanted to kill himself. This will be the final part of our conversation. I thought about splitting up into three parts. Decided just to go with two parts and then this one's going to be pretty long i think it's about a 50 minutes here so you'll get some bonus content other than that be on the lookout hopefully next week maybe the week after for the trivia extravaganza we'll get the trivia contest going so stay tuned for that and other than that just enjoy this final conversation with sam weissman director of d2
3: the money ducks when you asked about when you asked about you know how the film evolved, you know, trust me, any director would tell you the first time you see an assembly of a movie, an editor's assembly, which where you, you haven't been able to have input because there's just no time. Mm-hmm. When I saw the editor's assembly, I wanted to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> what? what I mean, anything? I'm not kidding.
0: Any well, specific it reasons?
3: A, it, it, it was three and a half hours long. <laughs> oh,
2: we got to find that deleted scenes, the director's the cut,
3: editor's cut. Yeah, the editor's cut. Really? No, will no. It doesn't. It it doesn't exist because it was just on film. Oh. We were editing on the film in those days, you know. So uh, it was terrifying, <laughs> uh, and necessitated. We ended up bringing a, a second editor, you know, because we just needed, you know, to just get going in a different way. Uh So we had two editing rooms going, you know, in those days, this is before, you know, you had nonlinear digital editing, which was just beginning to come in around that time. So, uh, you know, you had a situation where if you had a scene or a sequence and it wasn't working, you know, you're looking at it like, you know in a on a film editing device, whether it's a movieola or a flatbed or whatever and if it didn't work, you know the editor would say, "Well, come back in two days I mean now the editor would say, "Come back in an hour, you know and it it was a completely different world, you know yeah so, so everything took a lot longer, yeah,
1: yeah, so there's a there's a famous sort of deleted scene. Uh, where the, all the ducks go to the beach, and then, according to these novels, apparently, that were produced around the movies, they, like, get into a fight with Iceland. But there's some evidence in the trailer on YouTube of the ducks at the beach. Do you remember anything about this deleted beach scene?
3: Uh, I, I remember... I- What I remember is there was a beach volleyball sequence, Oh. I think. Uh, I I remember we shot at the beach, but to be honest with you, I don't remember (laughs) what we shot. That's fair. It was 25 years ago. Whatever it was, was, I had no faith in it. (laughs) Just as I had no faith in the America the Beautiful sequence that we spent so much time on. Oh yeah! You know about that?
1: Yeah, someone told yeah, us about was, uh, that. It was like a famous singer too that that sang it, right?
3: Meli- Mel- Melissa Etheridge. Yeah, she was great, and we're there in front of eighteen thousand people and uh, a gospel choir. <laughs> and I said, "And I said, this is never going to be in the movie." And <laughs> certain there are certain people that felt. It would be. And of course, it was never in the movie. And I ended up having to be the one to tell the Melissa Andrich that was cut. She was great, though. She was really, really nice. It was wonderful, you know, to interact with her.
1: Yeah. So, what is that like when you're like directing this scene that you know is never going to make it?
3: Uh, Kind of like getting an (laughs) enema.
1: Nice all right uh, uh we're we're coming up uh, we're actually probably over time but I have one quick quick question and then we have a a fan question so we haven't
3: even we haven't even talked we haven't even talked about the movie my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean well I can, guess can, what can't we do can't we do can't we do a double podcast
1: sure yeah sure we can go <laughs> long if you want i i try to be respectful of people's time but uh if you're down we can go long that's fine
3: yeah, fine, whatever. We should talk more about the movie.
1: Uh, all right. Uh, do you have any specific topics you want to talk about?
3: Uh, all the carousing we did in Minneapolis when we were shooting in Minneapolis. No, oh. I'm not going to talk about. That. <laughs> uh, I have... uh, I I learned how to I learned how to skate to direct the movie. Oh. I never skated.
1: Nice. So
3: Jack White, you know Love Jack. Uh, Jack's great. He basically taught me how to skate in one day. I went in one day, I mean, not to be any good, but I literally went from like holding onto the boards and not being able even to stand up to be able to skate around an entire hockey rink multiple times in one day.
2: Before you got the gig, did you lie about if you could skate like every uh, child actor did who was cast?
3: No, because I mean, it was totally unnecessary for me to be able to skate to direct the movie. And in fact, when we were on the ice, I spent more time on uh, wearing broom ball shoes than I did, you know, <laughs> wearing skates because, you know, there was a lot of cables and equipment on the ice when we were there. And, uh, you know, the days were pretty long. I mean, a short day, is 12 hours. So, you know, um, when we were shooting in Minneapolis, uh, you know, which is, you know, a lot of the other stuff other than, you know, the LA stuff and the big game, um, It was so humid at the rinks we were shooting at Minneapolis that at lunch, we would break for lunch and they'd open the doors to let, you know, people come out, go in and out after lunch, there'd be like a weather system in the rinks and they'd have to bring in fans (laughs) to move all the, the, the clouds of like what looked like clouds, you know, out of the way. So it didn't look like it was like raining inside the rink. It was, it was pretty crazy. Um but I, I loved Minneapolis. It was a really nice city and the people there were, were just great. It was a really nice place. And, uh... and of course the first day the first you know, the the when we shot at the pond, the arena wasn't even finished yet. And we were the first first people to be on the ice there. And we had one huge crowd day where they had recruited, you know, people who were fans Who wanted to see the arena for the first time, and literally they had twenty-two thousand people show up, Hmm. Uh, and so we had one big day, you know, with uh, with the big crowd, and it was it was pretty wild. I got to tell you. Of course, that was the day we wasted the time doing "America the Beautiful." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: Um, So, I have a question kind of along those lines. So, one thing we we talk about is, is, you know, we're always obviously looking at um, different scenes, different shots. And we're always kind of having, you know, interesting observations about people in the crowd. And so, when you're doing these, like, arena scenes where you have, like, all these fans in, et cetera, like, how do you find, like, the people that you're going to pan to, you know, the extras? Do you have, like, you know, 10 people that you know you're going to go to? Or is there, like, a section where it's like, okay, we'll make sure we have, like you know, a diverse crowd in this section, because that's when we're going to go to. How do you pick, like, the fans that are getting close-ups, essentially, the ones who are going wild whatever?
3: Well, you're talking about for the for the final game, the big game, or any of the games?
2: Well, yeah, just just in general. How are you picking, like, the fans that you guys are zooming in? Obviously, whenever, well, you know, Miss McKay's in the stands, you most, want her,
3: but... Most of the time we were shooting in arenas, we didn't have a lot of fans. I mean, <laughs> you know we only had any significant prou- crowd in the pond for one day. And the other days it's all an illusion. We may have had a couple hundred people, uh, and you know, it's all done with camera angles. And in, in fact we use cutouts, uh, because this, this is pre we didn't have a budget for digital crowds. And of course in 1993, 94, it was a much bigger deal to try to create a digital crowd than it became a few years later, you know? So we actually had cutouts. I mean, literally cutouts, you know, (laughs) cardboard cutouts and seats. How
2: many cutouts do you need for like Uh, a 10,000 arena venue? uh,
3: We don't try to fill it. You just try to like, you know, confine the angles you're shooting. And I, I really don't remember how many we had. Are these cutouts, like, very realistic, or by the time
2: you get to, like, number 100, they're just, like, a smiley face?
3: <laughs> the cutouts. it took me many days of shooting before I realized it was the same four people. <laughs> over and over again. That's hilarious. All right. Uh, you know, and, and basically it's all done with, like, keeping the seats dark and... Uh, trust me if you wanted to go frame by frame you'd see a lot of stuff in this movie that you wouldn't believe is in there. <laughs> well, we're going to do there. that as soon as this is over. <laughs> well, I know there's there's millions of people who have said, "Oh, in such and such time in the movie, so and so is on the bench on the on the ice at the same time." Yeah. Well, duh. You know, I mean, that person's got too much time on their hands. Yeah. Uh I mean, cuz you talk about edits that are sometimes, you know, you know, 6 and 7 frame edits that are just made in you know, no one's parsing who's where at any given time, you know, it's just luckily with, you know, hockey, people are wearing helmets, so you can't really see, you know, who's doing what to whom, you know. Um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Mark Irwin, was the director of photography, you know, knew hockey and, and we had a bunch of people who knew hockey and basically, you know, the thing about hockey, it's not necessarily where the puck is. It's like what's happening off the puck you know as well um uh, and a lot of it is the montage of quick edits that create the illusion that something's happening you know and you're sort of you know you know the a to b to c of it is less interesting than kind of the, the energy of 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 the thing of course being a kids movie we had all these things that were you know comedy uh, base so you had to kind of do the setup and then the, the joke and then the aftermath whatever but a lot of the hockey in the movie is really hockey we shot with no plan we just would let you know the skating doubles just go at it and we would just take little piece here and little piece there and uh, that's how it's cut together so the sidebar to all of this is several years later when they were making the Miracle uh, movie about the mm-hmm. Olympic gold medal mm-hmm. uh, I knew the producers of the movie and uh, uh, I also knew several people who I recommended to audition who were hockey players around the Boston area where I live and actually one of them got in the movie in a, in a role and ended up making so much money off the movie it was like ridiculous because there were so many residuals <laughs> uh, I said to these guys I, they said well do you have any advice for us and I said, well, what I learned doing ducks was that, yeah, you could have a plan about what a play is like or what's going to happen. But after you shoot the plan, take a little time and just put as many cameras as you have. And we usually had at least three cameras going, uh, put the cameras on the ice and just let the players play with the cameras, you know, in the action, not outside the boards or above or anything like that. Just put the cameras on, gate dollies in the ice and get what you can and they said oh yeah yeah no you know we have a great second unit director and he has everything plotted out well my friend who was in the movie like emailed me or texted me like a few days in the movie and he goes oh he goes oh man we're already like two weeks behind it was only like the third day <laughs> and they finally they finally like took the advice and started just improvising. And that's only then that they really, you know, figured out how to, how to shoot the hockey, you know. So, you know, I would venture to say that the hockey in D2 is as good as any hockey you'd seen in any hockey movie there is. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm out of line in saying that. And a, a lot of that is really due to, you know, Jack White and, you know, my giving Jack free reign and also a wonderful uh, second unit director, uh, Steve Boyham and um, and Mark Irwin, the DP. So, you know, I, I, I'm really very proud of the hockey.
2: Um, quick question. I'm sure Jack White, first of all, is going to take that quote and put it on some business cards to hand out. <laughs> um, and so- I think he
3: already has. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, so you're working on a sequel. So obviously a lot of these characters already. You assume people know them. They're established. They've got an arc. Um, what? a like what? Were there certain characters that you know you feel like you really either helped out with new characters or like were there older ca- characters who were already introduced that you thought you know could you can get some more depth? Like if you look at D2, is there a character you that you think okay I I was a lot of I was a big part of their. Their role, and you know, I, you know, my fingerprints are kind of all over that um,
3: performance. Well, I would, I would say Keenan Thompson. You know, uh, I do not remember his character's name. Who, who Russ play? Tyler. Russ Tyler. Yeah, I would say Keenan. Uh, you know, was really kind of one of the main ener- energizers of the movie, especially with the street hockey scene and all that. And Keenan was just really funny. And you meet this fourteen year old kid who kind of likes to improvise and stuff, and you know he was great and uh you know the other thing is that all the new characters sort of had to be introduced, so the kind of Portman and Fulton thing you know having fun with the bash brothers was 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 good uh, and I would say that you know the more serious aspects of the movie, it was a little awkward because the kids were just older enough so that I felt that even in the second movie, it was borderline doing the stuff we did. And by the time they did the third movie, which I really, you know, they begged me to do, I I just wasn't going to go there. (laughs) In my opinion, the third movie was treading on, you know, difficult ground because the kids were just too old, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, The charm of the first movie was the kids were just really kids. By the time you get to the second one, you know, they're already, you know, grown up. So uh, it's kind of hard to, you know, it was, it was awkward. I think uh, Josh Jackson, you know, he was really good to direct. He was a really mature actor, I think, for his age. And Vinny who played uh, Banks, Mm -hmm. you know, he had some nice serious moments. So, so that was good, you know? Um, Anyway, I think, I think that was the one scene in the movie that I think I'm most proud of is the locker room scene because, you know, we had this awkward thing where we had to figure out how to introduce the Mighty Ducks hockey team jerseys Mm and, and, it was a demand that was placed on us when we already had almost were about to start the movie hmm. and start shooting and um i believe i came up with this notion of trying to make a virtue of that scene uh where amelia goes in the locker room and says you know who are you you know uh you know, and they all introduce themselves and say where they're from, and it kind of becomes a nice, you know, kind of schmaltzy moment. And then it was on the heels of that moment that Jan, uh, you know, whips whips off his coat or whatever it is and reveals the jersey. Mm-hmm. You know, it was some difficult dramaturgy going on there, um, and that locker scene locker room scene took forever to shoot. So <laughs> Why did it was, take so long? It was, was it just timing? Well, it was a it was a set, you know, and a set with a lot of people and a lot of people having to have their moment and you, you couldn't really uh, cheat it. You really had to shoot every single person or little duo and give them kind of, you know, a nice, a nice moment with a camera movement. And, you know, it took a while, you know, and you're also dealing with, you know, having a limitation on the kids' hours because they're they're under 18. Now, luckily the movie was shot in the summer, so we didn't have to put them in school, but you're still very limited in their number of hours on the set. Um, so it's difficult. I don't know if you know about the child labor laws, but you know, if you have anyone under eight under 18, is considered a minor and uh, you're limited in the hours you can work them.
0: Uh, speaking of those kids, um, you know them being thirteen around that age. Um, were any of them uh, particular pains in the ass?
3: Uh, I would never comment on that. <laughs> but you know, but based but based on other people I've worked with in my my lengthy career, I would say there was no one in the movie who was a pain in the ass. Uh, no one was difficult.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, it was a really really nice. Nice group, and the and the parents and guardians were really great too. Uh, I, I don't ever recall any kind of you know major problem in the movie, except maybe a minor injury or two here and there. You know, I mean, yeah. the other scene that was very difficult to do was the you know when they encountered the ice the Iceland team the night before, and and Emilio and Carsten. Uh, uh, you know, do their one on one thing, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, would only exist in D2, the mighty double. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, completely made up. Made up by, thing. Yeah. Yeah. I believe Brill and I had a hand in that um, uh, together. That was a difficult scene. By the way, do you know that the reason uh, uh, Kareem is in the movie I was about to ask Dream you about cameos, you
1: but I do not know why he's in there. Well,
3: I was a huge basketball fan and I was obsessed with Kareem. I had Lakers season seats for years and also knew a lot of people who were involved with the Lakers. And I'd always wanted to interact with Kareem and never had been able to. And I said, wow, here's an opportunity. We're going to have this party scene. Uh, so uh, the person who turned us down, who was supposed to be in the scene, was Pat Riley. <laughs> oh, Pat, Pat Riley. Pat Riley had, was a friend of mine before he ever became a coach. Huh. And uh, I had like an hour and a half phone call with him to try to convince him to be part of the movie. And it was going to be more than just the party scene. It was going to be a whole other thing. And he considered it for quite a while and he was pitching lines and everything that he might say. And he said, well, what would I wear? You know, you know, he was very image conscious (laughs) because it was closed. And, and, uh, but he ultimately decided not to do it. it was probably for the best. Uh, but Cam Neely, who was a friend of mine, he was in the movie, and I've actually put him in other things I've directed too. uh, So we brought him out to L.A. to be in the movie, and we had, obviously, I think he might have gotten us Chris Chelios and Luke Robitaille. I can't remember. By the way, sidebar to Luke Robitaille. Uh Well, Cam, I see, because he he lives in Boston. He's president of the Boston Bruins, who are now favorites to win the Stanley Cup, (laughs) knock on wood. Uh, uh, But a few years ago or several years ago, my son used to live in L.A., And he he would go like to go to Kings game. So we went to a Kings game and Luke Robotai is president of the Kings. Right. So there was some like private lounge or private club you would go to at intermission. It was like maybe five, six years ago. And uh, we go to this club. And during one of the intermissions and uh, uh, Luke Robotai is over there and my son says, oh, dad, there's Luke Robitaille. Don't you know him? From D2, And I go, well, yeah, I, I met him, you know, that one day he goes, I go, he wouldn't remember me. He goes, yes, he would. He says, go on up to him. So I go up to him and I said, Luke, excuse me, my name before I could finish, you know, my sentence. He goes, oh my God. You know, he completely <laughs> remembered me. He brings his kids over. He goes, he goes, this is Sam Weissman. He directed me in D2. And then he says, I still remember what you, the advice you gave me that day. And I go, I don't remember it. <laughs> And he said, You fooled me. He said, Because you realized I was nervous. And uh, he said, You tricked me because he said, Oh, you told me you're just going to rehearse. And in reality, we were rolling. And uh, you fooled me into being relaxed. Anyway, it was actually pretty, pretty cute that he had remembered. <laughs> Very nice guy. That's yeah.
1: amazing. Yeah, so Pat Riley was supposed to be in
2: it. Hold on, real quick. So I always thought Emilio's hair when he's like Captain Blood is Pat, that's Pat that's Riley. It's an homage, right? Yeah, that that can't be def- an accident. Def-
3: that definitely, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So by the way, the Kareem, the the coda to the whole Kareem thing was that uh, my daughter is an editor, you know, book editor, mm-hmm. and a few years ago she was editing a book of essays. It was called Crush. And it was about writers writing on their first celebrity crush. And at the last minute, you know, they lost a couple of people and she said, oh, we really want some of the entertainment business. You know, would you do one? And I said, oh, I don't know. I don't even know who my crush would be. And I said, oh, I said, oh, wait a minute. I said, OK, well, here's my crush. But you're not going to want to do it. I said, my crush is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> so she went. To, to the other people collaborating on the book. She said, no, they love that. Would you write this essay? So I wrote it and it's in the book. And in fact, in some of the reviews it mentioned it as being one of the, the reviewers favorite essays, because basically the whole idea was I was this Kareem, and I were born just a couple of days apart. And I said, we're really very similar. You know, the only fact being that I'm this short Jewish basketball player and he was Jabbar, <laughs> And, uh, you know, I was sort of obsessed with him when I was a teenager uh, and then always wanted to meet him and followed his career. And then the coda to the whole essay is that I finally you know, write this part for him in D2 so I can sit down and talk to him. And in fact, we did sit down and talk that day. And it was actually really cool because he talked a lot about John Wooden and, uh, you know, saying that he recognized that being a director was sort of like being a coach and that you had to be responsible for the whole team, the way a basketball coach was. And it was really, really a lovely experience. It was was really nice.
1: So do you just call the Lakers and say, Hey, I want Kareem Abdul-Japar in this uh, party scene. And they're like, we'll do it.
3: Well, he had just retired, I think, at that point. I'm pretty sure he retired that year. Oh, okay. Uh, I think that was his last year. We called, I think they called uh, his uh, business person or whatever, and Mm -hmm. you know he he was he was on board. He was he was great, and uh, we had all these people on one day. (laughs) The Gretzky day was 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 a different day, and that was you know different. But um, uh, we had you know the hockey players, Kareem, Chris Chelios, and Christy Yamaguchi, I think. Yeah. Who was in the movie. And Greg Louganis. Yeah. Oh, Greg Louganis, right. Yeah. 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 Uh, So uh, anyway, they were all great. I wanted, there was another skater I wanted who I thought was just gorgeous, but she wasn't available. (laughs) Uh, So I I wanted like a whole trio of women skaters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah.
0: after after you shoot yeah. that scene, do you just kind of continue partying with them?
3: No, 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 no. We're just, we're just trying to get the work done. I mean, it, <laughs> that was a big day. It was a very complicated day. Almost every movie, a day on the movie was complicated. I, mean, <laughs> I remember the first day shooting. You know, we we shot the last game first because it was when the the arena was available, and that was just crazy. And on the first day we shot, uh, the head of physical production for Disney was so pleased with the amount of work we did the first day. He had a fake cover of variety in the the show business newspaper, mm-hmm. uh, made up. It said something like, I think we did like 87 setups or something the first day. And, he said d2 sets record weissman does 87 setups (laughs) so like with the headline it was it was actually i don't know what happened to it i know where it is i would really wish i had it
1: you had one more cameo in there uh steve brill made an appearance at the party i guess that's his his thing in the ducks to appear in all three uh coming from an acting background did you try to sneak yourself in there too
3: uh I was in the movie, but I think it was cut. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, yep. I believe I don't remember what it was exactly. It was something in the last game and I was like an on like uh either an official like near the penalty box or something like that. I can't remember. Um uh, but I mean there was so much stuff in the movie that should never have been in there and <laughs> um actually you know, uh, you know, one of the more interesting moments in the entire experience was the first test screening.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, I don't know. Do you know what test screenings are?
2: We know. What's Why don't you explain screenings? it for our audience?
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's where they recruit an audience, and they don't tell the audience the movie they're going to see. They just tell them the type of movie and they basically recruit people at shopping malls and movie theaters, whatever. And, and then you, you you go to like, you know, some Cineplex somewhere and you're there with 500, uh, people who, who are there to see a free movie and to get free popcorn and soda. Hmm. And, um, they couldn't care less. And it's just a terrifying experience. For any movie uh, now coming on the heels of the first movie be, being so successful I had a feeling that the recruitment company must have cheated uh, and I think the people in the audience knew they were about to see a, a Ducks movie oh. uh, and the, screen, the screening you know went well but I mean it was way too long and and what you do you spend a couple of days doing what's called a, a, a temp sound mix, temporary sound mix. And because the movie was so complex with all the ice stuff uh, and so much of the stuff on ice was shot with no sound uh, because it was second unit and the sound would have been no good anyway. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you have to try to like build, you know, a quick sound. uh, So it sounds at least decent. And obviously the final sound mix was, you know, took probably six weeks. You know, so, uh, you know, you screen the movie and you just hope it goes well. And because Michael Eisner, you know, this hockey Jones and they were about to have the team, whatever, he came to the first meeting as did Jeffrey Katzenberg and all the Disney executives. So it was really high pressured. Right. Mm -hmm. So the movie's about to end. And then typically what happens is the audience fills out questionnaires and they also then have a focus group of about 20 people. But Michael said, you know, it's mighty ducks. You know, I don't care about the focus group. He goes, Sam, come with me. We're going to the restaurant. And I go, I'm thinking to myself, well, can I swear on, can I swear on yeah, the podcast? Please this do. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, th- yeah. I'm thinking, what the fuck is the restaurant? I'm, I'm like, I'm I'm thinking the restaurant could be code for you did such a shitty job, we're gonna put you in cement overshoes and you're gonna be at <laughs> the bottom of the river. You, you called me. your old
2: friends from back east. <laughs> yeah.
3: And and Michael goes, Walk with me. And we begin and he's like he's very tall guy and he also walks really quickly. And everybody else is trying to catch up. Right. And yeah. I'm walking with Michael Eisner and we're walking through like passages underneath this cineplex to wait with like, you know, heating pipes and you know what I mean? It was like Mm -hmm. going, where are we going? You know what I mean? Well, it turns out there's some private room in a restaurant on the other side of this mall where they would, you know, have food pre-ordered. And in this private, you know, dining room, and you go in there and this is where he wanted to have the meeting because, you know, he wanted to eat at the same time he's giving his notes and then he's going off to his next thing or whatever. So he, he gets into this room and there's a big long table. that's like almost like the last supper, you know, it really looked like it. And he sits in the middle and the pe- seating order is, the court is according to importance descending on either side of him. And I'm right opposite Michael. Right. So he could talk directly to me and he was, and the producers are all trying to like clamor around, you know. And so Michael, the food comes, and you don't even have a choice of what the food is. He's like dishing the food out and everything, you know. <laughs> and and he says, I just have a few things. I think the movie's really good. And he's like, he addresses his stuff. He's got them written down. And he says, Well, I need to run. He says, but you guys can continue. So then he leaves and like everybody then moves over. Jeffrey Katzenberg moves into his seat and then the next person moved into Jeffrey's seat. You know what I mean? It's like a packing order, you know? <laughs> the thing was hysterical. I mean, it's like, you know, and this is my first experience and, you know, I have no idea. You know, I think I'm going to be dead. And of course it all went went very well, you know, so. Yeah.
1: So you like waited
2: you know, you, for him to eat first yeah. and then you made sure it was okay. we not being poisoned.
3: <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Yeah, but he was great. He was, he was. You know, I did another movie for Disney, uh, four years later, whatever, uh, George of the Jungle mm-hmm. with Brendan Fraser, and and Michael was tremendously helpful and supportive in that movie. So I, I have nothing but good memories of him.
1: Did you get invited to the restaurant on that one?
3: Uh actually, that experience. Was not the same because Michael did not come to the first oh, or okay. second preview. Uh, and it was a very different experience, unfortunately <laughs> but but interestingly enough, he he heard about how great the movie was doing in the in the previews, and we were Ooh. racing to finish it, and he said, oh, "I really want to see the movie, and you know the movie existed on film, you know, to screen it because uh, people weren't doing digital projectors yet. Uh, so it took us a few days to be able to arrange to have a re- recruited screening for him, in which case the movie had to stay intact. You know, we couldn't, uh, you know, begin the final stages of post-production. So the movie uh, screening for him wanted, he wanted it close to where he lived he lived on the West side of LA. Well, Everybody knew at that time the last thing you ever did was screen a recruited audience on the west side of LA because you were going to get people that were in the business or were very business savvy about the entertainment business and the audiences would be notoriously no good. But it's what we had to do, and everyone was nervous. And we screened it at Century City in the big cineplex there, uh, you know, with a very large audience, probably about you know six, seven hundred people. And we also invited the lead actors to the screening, which was also a nervous making thing, you know, and the movie starts and the air conditioning breaks <laughs> okay. and it was the summer and it was so hot. It was like you could just see the audience just sweating throughout the movie. But Michael liked the movie. And it was all fine. And he had one bit of advice that was we instituted and, and he, was, he was really good, really smart guy.
2: What was that piece of ice? Was it Brendan Fraser uh, being naked? (laughs) Because my mom really remembers that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: He he said, look at the first 10 minutes of the movie and see if there's anything you can do to just tighten it up a little bit. And literally, I went back the next morning to the editing room and the editor said, well, what did Michael say? And He said he wants to see if we can speed up the beginning. He goes, oh, no, the beginning's great. And I said, well, let's just look. And literally, I cut like a minute 10 seconds out of the first 10 minutes of the movie and nothing was eliminated. It was all just tightening. <laughs> and so that was, that was a t- tremendous lesson. And obviously the movie grossed, you know, over a hundred million dollars. So, you know, he was right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So I want to go back to the mighty ducks and, uh, you said something a while ago now that, uh, piqued my interest. And I, I keep forgetting to ask it until now, obviously. So, you mentioned that you sort of had some contact with the guys who did Miracle and whatnot, and there are some similarities between D2 with Gordon Bombay doing the, the sort of sprints after the game, and then obviously the locker room scene where they all stand up and say where they're from and that kind of stuff. Uh, did you pull from okay. the ni- 1980 Olympic team, okay. or did Miracle pull from you? Did Was there any overlap there?
3: Well, miracle was way after Mighty Ducks. Yeah, I mean, miracle was made. Yeah. Well, well the I story of the '80 Olympic team
2: with Herb Brooks being a incredible asshole, basically. <laughs>
3: uh, well, yeah. Everybody said he was very difficult, but uh, <laughs> I don't think there was a moment where all twenty-five guys of the team stood up and said where they were from. Was there? Well, he there's the there's sort of the cut scene where they're like,
1: uh, "Who do you play for?" And then at the beginning, they're like, "Oh, I'm so and so, of Boston University." And then obviously at the end, Mike Arruzioni is like, "I play for the United
3: States of America." Oh, well, they 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 probably did that because of our movie, but I don't think it was done in real life.
2: <laughs> yeah, we, uh, uh, that definitely wasn't done in in real life. I remember watching a yeah behind the scenes thing and. Her Brooks probably would have made him run even more. Ruseoni spat it out yeah, like that.
3: They, they, I don't think they would have had time to do that. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, they may have copied it. But I, I didn't realize there was a cut scene for the movie. You know, listen, I've done so many things that have been copied by other people. I mean, it's like basically you go through your initial, you know, resentment, and then you realize that's just the way it is. I mean. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare stole from people and, you know, he was Shakespeare. So there you go, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's you know, interesting, I, I mean, you know, basically, you know, I tried to develop a movie around the same time I was hired to do ducks set in the world of college a cappella thing. So this is when we were in 1993. Nice. Do you know where I'm headed? Pitch perfect. Yeah, so basically, I started developing a college a cappella movie in 1993. And then in 2009, I I co-created and was the executive producer, moving forward, of the Sing-Off on NBC, Mm. which was an a cappella competition that was on sporadically. And that competition was based on a screenplay, which... I was developing, which Sony Pictures acquired, uh, which was about an acapella competition Hmm. in college. Hmm. And the director of Pitch Perfect, when he went in to try to get the job to direct the movie, took footage from the sing-off to make a sizzle reel. So, I mean, there you go. And there was at least five or six scenes in Pitch Perfect that were right out of one of our scripts for my acapella movie which wow. was, as I said, there was around for many years. So, uh, But the one smart thing that Pitch Perfect did is they centered it on a girls' group. And that w- was the way into that world that, uh, unfortunately, my movie didn't have. My movie was centered on a guys' group. So uh, there you go.
2: Was your movie a comedy or was it like a gritty, you know, like rated R <laughs> drama? <laughs>
3: It was actually no, it was a comedy. It was, but it was sort of like a sports movie. It was really, you know, it was really based on doing like a sports movie in acapella. You know, <laughs> that's kind of the way it was. You no.
1: Know? That's funny. All right, so Sam, yeah. we, we do this thing called the Quack Question. So we put out calls for questions, and we did not mention that it was going to be you on. We just said we had a special guest, and we asked uh, we asked fans to send in questions about D two. So uh, Kevin okay. has the question for you.
0: All right, uh, this week's quack question comes from Danny, who's at quackscuses ninety three on Twitter. Uh, Danny's question is: Wait,
3: This guy, this guy has a Twitter handle that's duck centric.
0: It's Quack ninety three. <laughs> yes, that's
3: hysterical. <laughs> that's
0: okay. Um, the question is: uh, Was any of the tension between the OG ducks and new team USA real off screen? Were there any cliques that formed between the kids who had been there before?
3: Uh, not that I'm aware of. I, mean, I was too busy to really know. Uh, I think they all seemed to get along pretty well, you know. You
0: never, you never had to like break up tussles.
3: <laughs> uh, no, but you know, I, again, I was so busy directing that, you know, <laughs> I just was trying to, you know, keep my head above water in that in that respect. You know, I, 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 you know, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so.
1: No. Okay. Yeah. So I guess we'll leave it with one last question here. Uh, when you messaged me, you said you were the proud director of D2. Um, through our conversation here, you've talked about, you sort of nitpicked and said uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that shouldn't be in there and that kind of stuff. Just uh, like when you look back on it 25 years later, just how do you feel about, kind of this film and then also how do you just feel about how it's sort of become this sort of uh, nostalgia piece for all of us who grew up in the early 80s uh in the early night or late 80s in the early 90s well the stuff
3: that i mostly was referencing about stuff that shouldn't been in there is stuff that never made it to the to the movie oh, okay it was just you know the script was just way too long and uh you know the thing about comedy too is you you try stuff and you know sometimes it seems like it might work on the page and people might have different opinions and then it doesn't work and you pretty much know
1: mm-hmm.
3: when you see it that it doesn't work as far as the nostalgia thing I mean uh, I, no I never would have thought it I mean uh, i i I do think it's pretty incredible how how kids who were of a certain age at that time uh, were affected by the movie. So for example, I have two kids and uh, when my daughter was probably about 13 or 14, uh, maybe even 12, 13, 14, whatever. And we were by that time living in Massachusetts, you know, I remember some little friend of hers, some, this boy, you know, who was, you know, hanging out uh, at our, we have a house on Cape Cod, We go there in the summer and, uh, this kid was there and he said, Oh, Mr. Weissman, you know, can I tell you something? And uh, I, I said, Oh, sure, whatever. He goes, Well, everything I've learned about life, I learned from D2. (laughs) 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 It's literally, and the kid really, really was serious about it, you know? Um, and like I started playing golf, you know, like five or six years ago and, Sometimes I'll get, you know, matched up or paired up with people in the golf course who are about, you know, anywhere between, you know, 34 and 40, whatever. And if I'm playing with a friend and the friend will tell them like at some point during the round, oh, Sam used to be in their entertainment business. And they'll ask me about that. And they'll say, well, what did you direct? And I say, well, how old are you? And if the guys, you know, between that age, I said, well, did you ever see D2, the Mighty Ducks? And they go, stop. They just go like. <laughs> You know, they go crazy. In fact, I was in Florida a couple of years ago with my wife. She had a conference and we were sitting at this bar at this restaurant and there are these two guys there who worked for I believe Adidas or some shoe company and they were really great guys and we were just talking and uh, they were in their 30s and they said, well, what did you used to do when you worked? I said, like oh, director. And they go, what did you do? Anything we would have seen? And I go D2. And the two of them basically start playing out scenes from the movie at the bar <laughs> of this restaurant. I mean, it was hysterical. And of course they bought us drinks and everything. And, you know, and then later the guy emailed me and said, we went home, we went back to the hotel that night and we watched D2 on pay-per-view. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, really, really pretty funny. Um, so I-, I, it is, it is kind of funny that the movie lives on, you know, either on a serious level or on an ironic level uh, or kind of on this cult level, uh, it, it exists on different levels. I mean, it's a little kids to see it now, even now they really are into it, you know? Uh,
0: have you had so any conversations or are you interested in in being involved with the potential series on Disney plus?
3: Uh, I don't think I would be a candidate for that. No, I haven't had any conversations. Are they doing it? Is it actually happening?
1: I mean, that was the report that Steve Brill and uh, Jordan Kerner were back, and they were developing this TV series for Disney Plus. There's been very little sort of news since it first sort of broke that they were working on it. So, um,
3: I, yeah, I think I think it'd be a tough tough thing to do. It'd be too expensive, you know. Uh, sports stuff is not easily accomplished in TV. I mean, Friday Night Lights. Mm-hmm. Would not happen right now. Would not happen in the environment of TV now. I'm pretty sure uh, that was a brilliant show. Peter Berg, by the way, you know, hung out, came to Minneapolis, and hung out on the set. Mm-hmm. He was he was good friends with Steve Brill, and he was he was an actor then. You know, uh, it was pretty interesting. <laughs>
2: well, what if Sam? What if they said that? Hey, we want you to direct an episode, and in this episode. We can have a couple of mobsters sitting at like a titty bar (laughs) discussing the cherry orchard. and You can finally make that its way into film. What if they said you could do that? It wasn't
3: the cherry orchard. It (laughs) wasn't the cherry orchard. It was was Ivanov, a lesser known Chekhov play. The one I was in. Yes, in that case, in that case, I would do it. All right. Chekhov on ice. I would do Chekhov meets the Mighty Ducks. That would be like a brilliant.
0: We'll we'll pass Brilliant that on to thing. Steve Brill. Yeah,
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: please,
1: please, you know. <laughs> the gauntlet has been thrown down. I like it. All right, yeah. Well, Sam, you have been uh, more than generous with our with your time. I think we'll split this up into two, possibly three episodes. We'll see how it goes. So we appreciate that. Uh, for us, thequackdeck.com, Go there. Contact us at quacktechpod on Twitter, facebookcom QuackdeckPod. Go to iTunes. Give us five stars. Tell us your favorite story that Sam told uh, on this trio of podcasts, duo of podcasts. There are quite a lot that I enjoyed. Uh, Keep clicking through that Amazon link. Go to the shop. And remember, ducks fly together.
2: Ducks fly together. Quack, quack. Quack,
3: quack. Oh yeah!